If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. In the modern world, we seem to benefit from an abundance of choice in our day-to-day lives. But are we really free to decide, or is choice just an illusion? On today's episode, we're joined remotely by cultural critic and philosopher Raymond Tallis, who unpicks the arguments against the existence of free will. I'm going to take the arguments to places where those who defend free will and those who deny it do not usually go. So fasten your seatbelts and let's go. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to Raymond Tallis. Tonight I'm going to talk about the truth about free will. The truth about free will is that within certain limits, we are indeed free. This is a practical reality, and yet it has seemed to some people to be theoretically impossible. In addressing this contradiction, I'm going to take the arguments to places where those who defend free will and those who deny it do not usually go. And for this reason, the argument may occasionally prove quite difficult. And I hope I should be forgiven because I believe that the difficulty is inherent in the subject. So fasten your seatbelts and let's go. When I say that free will is a reality, this is something that pretty well everyone accepts in practice. We acknowledge the difference between something that happens to me as when I fall down the stairs, and something that I do, as when I walk down the stairs at the start of a journey to London to attend a meeting. We praise and blame others inside and outside the law courts. We own up to actions which we feel we own. The fundamental difference between it happened and I did it lies at the heart of human relations and indeed of what we expect of each other. So much of the practice, or what about the theory? Actions are material events. Material events are connected by laws, causes, or indeed law-governed causes. Laws are by definition unbreakable. So what I do must be as subject to the laws of nature as other happenings in the universe. And causes have prior causes. And these have earlier causes. And indeed, we can trace this causal ancestry at least to events that took place before I was born. I cannot, it would seem, therefore, deflect the course of events. Instead of being the true origin of my actions, I am merely a conduit through which the material world passes 
in accordance with the unbreakable habits of nature. This is the case for what philosophers call determinism. So it's looking pretty bleak for those who believe, as I do, that we have free will and that we're in an important sense the source of our actions. But there is worse to come. Firstly, we rely on the laws of nature for our actions to have predictable consequences. I expect law-governed causality based on the reliable habits of the material world to, to deliver the outcomes that I want. If action and reaction were not always equal as opposite, as dictated by Newton's laws, we could not walk to the shops. And then there are recent studies in neuroscience that have seemed to show that it's not we, but our brains that are calling the shots when we engage in voluntary actions. In the famous experiments by Benjamin Libet and later John Dylan Hayes, subjects were asked to make a simple movement of the fingers or their hands at the time of their own choosing. They were asked a time when they formed the intention to make that movement. And the experimenters examined brain activity using various technologies. And what they found was that the brain activity associated with a preparation to make a movement occurred before the subject was aware of having formed the intention or the urge to move. The interpretations of these experiments have been, to put it mildly, overexcited. They have been thought to demonstrate that our brains are calling the shots. We are at our brain's bidding. It confirms what many philosophers believe, that free will is a feeling, but it is not a force. Our sense of being in control, as one experimenter has put it, is like that of a child moving a plastic, storing, plastic toy steering wheel next to the real thing held by its parent. There are many methodological problems with the studies of Libet and Dylan Hayes, and I'm very happy to discuss them in question time. But I won't talk about them now because there's something more importantly wrong with these studies as attempts to investigate free will and as attempts to adjudicate whether we have free will or not. What's wrong with them can be summarized very simply. They completely misrepresent the nature of voluntary action. We can see this by thinking about the subjects participating in the experiment. The study focuses on the subjects moving her hand or her finger, a very simple movement. But participation involves much more than that. It requires getting to the laboratory on time after a complicated journey to the relevant room and perhaps setting the alarm the night before to make sure the appointment is not missed, and even making other complex arrangements to ensure the appointment is honored. Additionally, it requires that the subjects could under should understand the general purpose of the experiment and the part they are to play in it, following the instructions and accepting reassurances that participation was entirely safe, notwithstanding all the intimidating equipment and all the folk in lab coats. None of this is represented in a simple movement of the hand. That, that movement is an expression of agency of free will only insofar as it is an element of the action of voluntarily participating in the experiment. In other words, as part of a much greater whole, looking at the hand movement in the context of the experiment as just a hand movement is rather like seeing a much trailed handshake between two national leaders as a mere arm movement. What the subject is doing, in other words, is not merely moving her hand, but participating in an experiment. The decision is not to move the hand or to move the hand at a particular time, but to take part in the experiment, something 
that has to be sustained over a long period of time and hardly corresponds to a simple decision or an urge. And then we need to consider the role of the experimenters who had been working in neuroscience for many years, who had acquired the necessary skills to design and carry out the experiments and had secured the funding and collaborative expertise to carry them out, write them up, publish them in the relevant professional journals. None of this looks like something cooked up in an isolated brain calling the shots, or even clusters of causally interacting brains. Widening our attention beyond the subject to the experimental team reveals even more clearly how the experiment, like most normal cooperative human activity, is not the product of a succession of discrete urges or discrete decisions strung together. This is not how free will works. So we may conclude that experiments supposedly demonstrated that it is our brains and not ourselves that are calling the shots are nothing of the kind. But these experiments are nonetheless informative because inadvertently they are reminders of the true nature of action. When I do something intentionally, my intention is not a discrete cause of what I do. My intention is inseparable from my situation and from broader aspects of myself. And these cannot be separated from the body that literally situates me. More broadly, I could not do what I do unless I knew what I was doing and why. This is a long way from law-governed causes. A stone does not have to understand why it is falling in order to fall. What a human agent does is shaped by an explicit goal, something that she herself entertains, even if it is an action she does reluctantly. reluctantly. This is a sense in which, as many philosophers have pointed out, Actions do not have causes, but reasons or justifications. And reasons and justifications are not causes. The most obvious difference between reasons, for example, and causes is that instead of being a causal push from behind, there is a pull from the, from the front, from the future, from a sense of a desired possible state of affairs, which we see or imagine and which we wish for. This is particularly evident when the goal is long term such as getting fit or learning to cope with shyness. The numerous elements, physical elements, that are sewn together in the performance of such an action would have zero possibility of coming together as a result of the unguided operation of the laws of nature. Take my going to the gym for several years in the hope of getting fit. It involves car journeys, freeing up time, buying and wearing the appropriate kit, making sure my subscription is up to date and so on. This is an ordering of events unlike anything seen in nature. Granted, all these elements are realized in physical movements, but those physical movements would not have come together had they not been requisitioned by a goal, as it were, transilluminating the whole sustained operation. My physical movements happen and happen in the order they do only because I know what I'm doing and why, because they are justified by a goal that I have and are requisitioned in order to achieve that goal. Actions that have actions have outcomes that happen because and only because someone wanted them to happen. This is a crucial difference between mere happenings in nature and the doings of human beings. Another difference between doings and happenings is the vast hinterland of cooperation that lies behind doings. The renewal of my gym subscription involves a multitude of, of other, other parties whose, whose contributions cannot be credibly described 
as merely material causes converging on the spot. Indeed, the parties encompass an invisible crowd of agents, ranging from the person at the other end of the phone to the individuals who had a role in developing the electronic means of payment, the communication systems that supported, and so on. What's coming into view is the community of minds that directly or indirectly support the most ordinary decisions and actions of our daily life. It is this, the social world, woven out of many modes of joined attention that clearly is not located in any individual brain, causally wired into nature, nor is it indeed located in any particular part of the material world. As we enter this community of mind, with our bodies and brains being, of course, a necessary entrance ticket, so we are increasingly distanced from the natural world and the unbreakable laws that we still rely upon for our actions to have the desired or expected consequences. There's something else in the hinterland, what we might call positioning or the creation of a positional advantage. There are simple examples of positioning, such as climbing to the top of a tree to extend our view. But there are more complex examples, such as planning well in advance, social maneuvering, rehearsal, training, practice. Indeed, much of our life is spent individually and cooperatively manipulating our circumstances, enhancing our capacities and capabilities, burnishing our potential performance, indeed for occasions that may never happen. That instantaneous response that enables me to catch the ball when I'm fielding in the slips in cricket has been prepared by months or even years of training. Now, we've got a bit more work to do yet to clarify the nature of free actions. And let me begin with something relatively straightforward, the time relationship between the physical elements of actions, on the one hand, and their goals. Goals are situated in the future, and they are shaped by the past. The future in question is complex and layered. For example, when I go downstairs to make a phone call to renew my subscription to the gym for next year, months may intervene between this action and the consequences that I wish to secure. The phone call, the sessions in the gym, and my ultimate aim of getting fitter or keeping fit are located in different futures. As for the past, this is not merely an implicit past that has implanted its consequences in me. It is an explicit past, a past that is in a sense present in the formulation of my forward-looking intentions. Now, this kind of temporal depth that spans the past, the present and future is not seen in the material world of causes and effects. A cause is an event at time t, and it is confined to time t. An intention, by contrast, draws on the past that informs it and reaches into an imagined future that will fulfill it. That's why it's a mistake to think of intentions as being causes and of themselves being effects of other causes. If you do that, you reinsert them back into the law-governed causal changes, chains rather, it reinsert them back into the law-governed causal chains that constitute the material world, and that is to misrepresent them. This is the moment to bring into play something that's absolutely central to free will and to our capacity to act upon the world as if from outside in pursuit of our distinctively human ends. That something is called intentionality. Intentionality is the key characteristic of mental events. It is their being about something. 
Let me illustrate this with a very simple example, seeing an object such as a glass. One explanation of seeing a glass is it is the result of a causal relationship between the glass and my brain. Light bounced off the glass, enters my retina, and this triggers activity in the parts of the brain that are associated with vision. Let's call those parts of the brain the visual areas. That all seems very straightforward, and it makes perception a process entirely governed by the laws seen to operate throughout nature. But not so fast. The causal relationship I've described, and it's there in the, in the, in the upper arrow in the slide, the causal relationship I've described accounts for how the light gets into the eye and tickles up the brain, but it doesn't account for the gaze looking out. That's the lower arrow. If the gaze were due entirely to the events, neural activity in the visual area, then we'd have a strange situation. These events would have to, as it were, point back up the causal chain to their causal ancestors. In short, while law-governed causation may explain how the light gets into the brain, it doesn't describe how the gaze looks out. The gaze looked at, looking out, visual perception or telereception, is about something other than itself. In the example we're talking about, the glass. So this is what, is what we mean when we refer to intentionality. Now, you may think at this stage we've drifted away from understanding the nature of free action. But actually, we've come to the heart of the matter. Intentionality is that in virtue of which we are outside of the material world. As such, it is the beginning of a place from which we can act upon the world as free agents. Now, fully to understand this and to grasp the source of the unique freedom of human beings, something else is required. It is the joining of the intentionality between individuals. At the risk of trying your patience, I want to talk briefly about this vast topic of joining intentionality. I want to again illustrate it with a basic example. In this case, pointing as a means of sharing experience. Pointing in order to share experience is a human universal, and declarative pointing of this sort is unique to humans. As everybody who's had a child will know, it's a striking period, striking feature of early development. Even before they learn to speak, children point out things to their parents, and parents do the same for children. In drawing one another's attention to something that it sees, the infant is creating a shared world that is rooted in, but offset from physical reality. With the advent of language, the shared world grows. As a language speaker, the child increasingly shares its consciousness with others and participates in a community of minds. And we have a human world woven out of trillions of cognitive handshakes between individuals and groups, and both created and inherited from the past. Human agents act within and from this distinctively human world, as will be obvious in the example I gave earlier of my engagement with the gym to secure a future state of my own body. And so we arrive at a fact, key to understanding free will, that we act out of a human world woven out of joined intentionality. This is a virtual space outside of nature. A particularly striking and potent aspect of shared intentionality and the virtual space outside of nature is knowledge. Knowledge is neither a simple effect of material causes nor a simple cause of material effects. 
knowing that and knowing how are resources that can be drawn upon at the time when we need them. And this is em em evident in the simplest fault reaction, as when I plan to meet you at a pub next week to talk things over, as they say. I don't know the pub, so you give me the direction as to how to get there. I write the directions down and keep the sheet of paper on my desk so I won't lose them. When the time comes, I pick up the instructions and consult them on the journey to the meeting. To see those instructions as causes in the way that pushes our causes is a misrepresentation of their true nature. They are not so much causes as items that I requisition to steer me to my destination. So our actions are guided, but not compelled by knowledge. And so we have an example of the way we turn material objects and events and states of affairs into handles by which we can act on the world and so order things that we so order things that we achieve our ends. Nothing could be more remote from our being the passive material on which external causes act. This is highlighted by the fact that the direction of influence is reversed. In the natural world, prior causes bring about subsequent offense, subsequent effects. In agency, a future goal influences the present actions. It is a back-to-front world. Intentions and the beliefs, knowledge, desires, hopes, and fears that motivate actions are not obedient residents of chains of causes and effects passing through the bodies, or indeed the brains of actors. To reiterate at an earlier point, in a causal chain, each event is confined to the time at which it takes place. It is not true of the elements of agency, which point to an imagined future and draw on a remembered past. The temporal depth of deliberate action entertained by the agent is different from anything seen elsewhere in nature. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Beyond this reversal of the direction of influence in goal-directed action is something even more profound. The future that is envisaged is not an actuality, but just a possibility. Which brings me to the second key idea, that freedom is made possible by possibilities that are created by intentionality. Now, there are many important differences between the actualities of which nature is composed and which are subject to its laws and possibilities which prompt and guide action. But here is a couple. Firstly, possibilities, by definition, do not exist out there. They exist only insofar as they are envisaged. The arrow of influence from the future to the present is thus from that which is not, or not yet, that which we want to bring about, to that which is. Secondly, possibilities, unlike actualities, are general rather than particular. Our intentions can be realized in a multitude of ways. 
What counts as the success of my meeting you in the pub to talk things over is not defined by a specific set of physical parameters. And this applies even more obviously when my goal, such as getting fitter or completing medical training, is of a broader kind. Nothing could contrast more sharply with the effects of a cause at time t, which is precisely determined. A voluntary action, then, is the realisation of a possibility that has been brought into existence as the result of being entertained by an agent. This is the sense in which actions are outside of the law-governed actuality of nature. Though, of course, the physical world is the medium in which our intentions have to be realised. But we're not done with possibilities yet. Where do possibilities come from? The sense of possibility is built into the intentionality of consciousness. The gaze looking out rather than the light getting in. When I'm aware of what is out there, my awareness exceeds what is delivered to me by experience. This is true to a limited extent, even the most humble experience. The glass, for example, is ascribed properties that are more than what is made available to me when I look at it. This raises all sorts of expectations about the glass, such as how it would feel when I touch it, how it would be experienced when I lift it, and how resistant it might be to pressure. Such possibilities are multiplied when we look at a landscape rather than a single object, and they are multiplied far further when we go beyond what can be individually experienced to what is brought to us by knowledge. So it is intentionality, and particularly it joined intentionality, that creates the possibility of possibility. Nature is what happens. Possibility is what might happen. It is in the realm of possibility that there are forks in the road and real choices. The road taken by the unfolding of nature does not have such forks. The possible is the foundation of a realm parallel to that of the physical world from which we can act on the physical world. We don't break the laws of nature when we exercise free will, but act upon or act with them with those laws from the virtual outside, which is a cue to return to the laws of nature, which worried us about the possibility of free will, and to return to science, which is one of the most elaborate expressions of joint intentionality. For some, the fact that the laws of nature are unbreakable proves we cannot have free will, and yet it cannot be denied that we use our knowledge of the laws of nature to extend our power. We can fly at, at 40,000 feet at 500 miles per hour. We can speak to people at the other end of the earth without raising our voice and blow up entire cities. These are real achievements for good or ill in the real world. Humans are armed with science, have become so powerful that the present epoch has been called the Anthropocene. So there's no doubt that as agents, far from being passively driven by the laws of nature, we are able to use those, those laws to serve our ends. But this raises the question of how we came to discover the laws of nature, to be able to exploit them to serve our own ends. After all, to discover the laws of nature, we must have in some sense stood outside of nature. Now, this is neither the time nor the place to discuss the philosophy of science, but two of the elements in science are relevant to our discussion. They are generalization from experience and the transformation of experience into measurement, into numbers. Generalization from experience is an extension of the property of the intentionality of experiences that takes us from the actual to the possible. Measurement is a manifestation of the increasingly active nature of experience as we pass from gawping 
to scrutinizing, to observing, and eventually to data acquisition under control conditions. In making measurements, we subjects try to get ourselves out of the way to uncover truths about what is there, about what is, has objective validity. While the actions that are involved in discovering the laws of nature, using a ruler or a telescope or a large hadron collider, don't break those laws, they are clearly not simply a product of those laws. We have to stand outside of nature to investigate it on our way to a theory of everything. And in this sense, there's nothing natural about the laws of nature as we express them. Equations are not to be found among clouds, trees, and monkeys. Nothing could be more powerful expression of our distance from nature than our ability to discover, to write down, and exploit an equation such as E equals mc squared. It is ironical, therefore, that we appeal to science sometimes as evidence that we are imprisoned in the unbreakable habits of nature. As to how we do exploit the laws of nature, having discovered them, John Stuart Mill has given a hint in a posthumously published essay. What did he say? Though we cannot emancipate ourselves from the laws of nature as a whole, he said, we can escape from any particular law of nature if we're able to withdraw ourselves from the circumstances in which it acts. Though we can do nothing except through the laws of nature, we can use one law to counteract another. The multiplicity of laws that we've teased out from what is going on at a particular place enables us to be both law-abiding or law-governed, at the same time not to be the helpless substances upon which laws operate. Underlying this is our capacity to single out from the totality of the conditions which underpin the occurrence of particular events, the factor or factors which are of interest. Much more to be said on this, but time is running out. Before I wind up, I want to preempt a couple of possible misunderstandings. First, my idea of the distinctive nature of action is not based on dualism, not based on the idea that there are two fundamental stuffs in the world, mind stuff and matter stuff. Dualism has all sorts of problems that I don't have time to address here. Suffice it to say that experience and intentionality is not a kind of stuff, even less a weightless stuff that somehow engages with, with the material world. Secondly, I'm aware that our freedom is limited and conditional. I'm not free to do absolutely anything. There are circumstances in which I'm less free than other circumstances. Political, physical, health and other factors may be severely constraining. Our freedom is both extended and limited by others and the happy accidents of our place in the social order. Although I can extend my freedom by positioning myself in the broadest sense, my capacity to do this is finite. And of course, I did not choose that I should be at all, and the duration of my time as an agent is restricted, whatever I want. It's time, you may believe, to wrap up. I would like to think that you are persuaded by what I've said to believe that the significant margin of freedom we have in practice is also possible in theory. Notwithstanding that in one sense, we are material objects in a material world, there is another sense in which we are outside of nature. In order to see this, we have to remind ourselves of something that is often forgotten, that actions are the realizations of possibilities, and those possibilities exist only insofar as they are envisaged. The entertainment of possibility by individuals, by groups, by nations, are not part of the material natural world, and it arises out of a fundamental characteristic of human consciousness, intentionality. That we have intentions, and that we can requisition parts of nature to realize them, is the missing ingredient of free will. The same free will that enables us to discover and exploit the laws of nature. Perhaps I should have called this talk Intention and Intentionality, 
except that it might have sounded like a lost Jane Austen novel. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for what I hope is your attention. I'm conscious this talk has not been easygoing, but some of the difficulty is, I think, due to the difficulty inherent in the topic. Am I taking the story of free will in a different direction from the one that is conventional in philosophy? Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.